Hello everyone and a warm welcome to this latest video and podcast from Winkworth Sherwood. My name is Emmy Page and I'm an Associate Solicitor in the Private Client Team here at WS. I'm joined today by a number of my colleagues in the Private Client Team based both in our London and Oxford offices, partner Tim Snay, partner Phil Collins and Senior Associate Solicitor Samantha Warner. Today we'll be focusing on the topic of wills and estate planning. Estate planning being the process by which one reviews and organises their personal affairs and assets to include how they'll be managed and disposed of or distributed in the event of death or loss of capacity. We'll be looking at a few of the key questions that may come up in an estate planning and will drafting exercise during lifetime. And then we'll also be looking at what happens on death if things don't quite go according to plan. To start things off, if you will, please imagine that an existing client has got back in touch to ask for an estate planning review. Perhaps they're about to undergo a serious operation in a few weeks time and want to ensure that their will is up to date and check that there's anything else um, they need to be thinking about in respect of their personal affairs and estate. Tim, if perhaps I could turn to you first. Initially, when a client is returning to us after a number of, of years, one of the first things, first things I like to do is review their family and financial circumstances to see if there's been any major changes or developments since the last time we sat down with them. Would that also be your starting point? Thanks, Emmy. Yes, I mean, actually, it's, it's the same whether they're new or old um, clients. The, the key point is to understand have there been any material changes since the last time they reviewed their estate planning? And here we're rather assuming, I think, that, that there is a will in place already. Um, but for us, then, you know, things like hospital appointments and, and major medical um, procedures um, are a time where it does make clients think about, you know, their personal affairs and, and review their wills the other is when children leave home for example or grandchildren arrive and, and obviously one of the first starting points of when clients really start to think about wills is the arrival of their own children so first first question is always have there been any changes material changes in family and financial circumstances um and for us if i keep going with that example of the children one of the common ones is the next stage um, so if it's big motivation and driver is to get a will in place when children arrive, the next one is when the children have, have flown the nest. That's the point where generally we look to strip away um, things like guardian clauses, etc., and, and maybe bring the children into the fold um, so that they're starting to be involved in the arrangements in the event of, of you know, these dark days arriving. Thanks, um, Hopefully that, that covers the, the key points you were looking for on that one, Amy. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Tim. Um, so that's the will that you've um, just touched on. But what about assets that fall outside of the free estate and therefore the terms of the will, such as death and service um, or pension death benefits? I know these can often be quite valuable. Yeah, it's, it's really important to think about. And actually often people see it the key and the core part of their planning as their will. But quite often you can have far more valuable assets outside of what we call the free estate. So that being things that you've just mentioned, pensions, life insurance, or what we call death in service as well with, a, with an employer. Often there can be certainly hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions in some cases, that wouldn't be governed under the terms of a will. And so it's really important to bring those strands together. We often sort of see it as three separate strands, bringing them together to make sure there's a sensible plan in place, because you might have a fantastic will which is very clear and really quite robust but if no one's thought about where where the death and service benefits go 
or where the pension benefits go, often they can go in completely the wrong direction. If one uses an example of an unmarried couple, often um, one where when you start a new employer with a new employer, you might put the nomination down of your current partner um, and actually roll on another five years. You're still at the same employer, but you've changed partner, as it were. You may not have updated that nomination. So really important to think about those things and bring that plan together. Yes, it's that cohesive approach, isn't it? And um, to consider the whole estate in that wider picture. Yeah. But thinking back to our client then, um, who's got in touch to review their will, Sam, if I could ask you for your thoughts on this, um, what if they explained that they had in fact, um, in fact been very unwell over the last few months and perhaps their health is slowly getting worse? Are there any particular considerations during the will, will review exercise um, in this kind of scenario? Thanks, Amy. It's, when someone makes a will, the solicitor um, needs to ensure that that person, who's known as the testator, has the testamentary capacity to make that will or to amend their current will. So here you've been made aware that your client has health issues. So you'd first want to check whether their medical condition has, has fundamentally impaired their mental capacity or whether it prevents them from exercising their judgment in any way. If it does, you'd almost certainly want to obtain a formal testamentary capacity report from a doctor or capacity expert, um, say, to, to satisfy yourself that their medical condition won't affect their ability to make the will and to avoid any challenges at a later date. And there's also the standard test um, known um, as the Cranks and Goodfellow test that all solicitors would carry out when taking will instructions. The first limb of that test is whether the testator knows the nature and effects of a will. So essentially what a will is and the consequences of making one. Secondly, they need to have an awareness of the extent of their property so they know what assets will pass under their will. And as Tim just mentioned, crucially, what will pass outside of it. So they don't necessarily need to give you full details and current values of everything they own, but they should have a general idea of, of what they own, properties, shareholdings, bank accounts, that kind of thing, and whether any of those assets are held jointly with their spouse or anyone else, um, say an unmarried partner, as Tim mentioned. Finally, they need to have a concept of their moral obligations. So who would they, would they would be expected to provide for in their will? And importantly here, um, if they're not, for example, providing for their spouse or they're choosing to not treat all of their children equally, um, as we, we sometimes see, you'd ask them to explain why. Um, they may have perfectly good reasons for departing from equality. For example, if they've made um, gifts to one of their children um, before, um, or if a child has a disability, that will mean they'll need more money from the estate to support themselves going forwards. Um, if this is the case, however legitimate the reasons, I generally encourage my clients to write down why they're excluding or unequally benefiting a key family member in case the will were to be challenged after their death. So just focusing on that last point a bit more then, Sam, you say that a will could be potentially challenged if someone isn't providing for an individual that they perhaps ought to be providing for. But I think there's a general understanding and that a key part of English law is the concept of testamentary freedom. So being the ability to leave your estate to whoever you choose via your will. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely, Emmy. So, so yes, uh, we, we have the principle of testamentary freedom in this country. So unlike some civil law jurisdictions where the law dictates where some or all of your, your estate will pass on your death, under English law, you can choose who benefits. Having said that, if you are a family member of someone who's passed away, a spouse, a long-term cohabitant, a child or, or other dependent, and you feel that the person who died should have made financial provision for you or should have made more provision than they have done, 
There's a piece of legislation um, that was brought in in 1975 called the Inheritance Provision for Family Independence Act, which can help. And it allows disappointed beneficiaries who fall into certain categories to make a claim against the deceased person's estate. And we're increasingly seeing um, these kinds of challenges. Thank you, Sam. So we've spoken then about the planning that takes place during lifetime and things for an individual to take into account and consider when making a will. But now, um, if we may, let's think on what might happen um, after death if things go wrong. So perhaps we have a disgruntled beneficiary who wants to know what they can do if someone's will doesn't provide for them in the way that they were perhaps expecting. Um, Phil, I know you deal with these sorts of claims in your practice. Could you tell us a bit about what options are available to someone who comes to you thinking about challenging a will? Yeah, absolutely, Emmy. Thanks. Um, yes, I, I deal with a lot of uh, potential claims uh, from people, obviously ordinarily people who have been um, excluded either fully or partially from an, an estate that they were possibly expecting to inherit uh, sometimes very substantial sums of money from. Um, and in any situation, uh, it's important to do a fair, to start with, to do a fair amount of fact-finding work, just to assess whether or not the potential claimant has a viable claim against an estate. So for example, uh, we would want to um, attain a copy of the will, and if the will had been professionally drawn up, uh, obtain a copy of the will file prepared by the solicitor, which ought to include some um, attendance notes. And depending on the, uh, the manner of the person's death, uh, we would probably almost uh, always want to see a copy of that person's medical records. And that can take some time, often several months, but it's often um, uh, critical to get, to get the medical records. And um, um, as part of that initial exercise, we're sort of busy building a picture of who is involved with the will making process, um, were the beneficiaries overly involved in the, in the situation or were they just making arrangements for a, a person to have a will drawn up professionally and possibly um, nothing wrong has actually happened. But it, once you've completed that initial fact-finding exercise, then um, yes, a lot of people used to think many years ago that it wasn't really possible to challenge a will, but there are some grounds of attack that one can make. And um, one of those is, um, uh, has the will been validly executed? And that might seem a, quite a simple thing, but it's um, often the case that wills have not been properly um, executed in terms of uh, where the witnesses in the, in the room at the same time as the, as the testator signing. Um, uh, in addition to that, there's also potential claims for, um, as Sam touched on, whether or not someone has got um, testamentary capacity to make a will. Uh, and often we're seeing increased claims in that in that sphere with um, increasing amounts of um, Alzheimer and, and dementia related illnesses. Equally, someone might be able to challenge a will because the person simply didn't know and approve of the contents and they didn't have a good understanding of what it was they were um, uh, giving away under their will. So there are several lines of attack and um, if none of those are uh, potentially viable, then as again, as Sam touched on, there's always a potential claim for, for certain qualifying claimants, generally spouses, children, and long-time cohabiting partners of the deceased to potentially make a claim under the Inheritance Act. Um, and again, we're seeing a, an increasing number of those sorts of claims. So if an individual feels that they have a strong case and they want to challenge the will or um, bring a claim, is it a case of starting a formal claim and going to court, or are there other options available to them? Thankfully, in our in our system, Emmy, um, court should always be treated as a last resort, and, and, and the rules that govern court action very much are geared towards treating court as a last resort. 
and encouraging parties where possible to um, exchange information early on by way of a letter of claim and for the person who is generally the beneficiary of the estate to, to um, provide a letter of response. And the, uh, the parties are encouraged to exchange information, exchange documents um, as a sort of cards on the table approach in an effort to um, deal with disputes uh, more cheaply, more efficiently and, um, and, and certainly taking some of the stress and unpleasantness out of what are potential court proceedings. Only a small, um, only a small amount of claims that are actually issued at courts ever go to trial, usually about 4% of less. Uh, or, or less claims that are actually issued end up at trial. And that doesn't even take into account all the many, many thousands of claims that are dealt with um, in what we call the pre-action stage that, that don't involve court proceedings uh, at all. Um, uh, as with many disputes, um, parties are encouraged to engage in what's known as alternative dispute resolution or ADR. And often that will include um, some sort of uh, formal mediation process again, in, a, in an effort to avoid court proceedings and to try to resolve disputes um, where possible, uh, as amicably and as cheaply as possible. Thanks. Well, that's really interesting. And it's helpful to know that there are those other options available outside of the courts. So taking into account all that we've spoken about today, Tim, can I ask you what you would consider to be the key piece of advice to take away from today's discussions about estate planning? Um, I'm always going to be slightly prejudiced on this because my world is spent, my time is spent planning um, for that for that dark day. But there's no doubt the planning exercise, to my mind, that is that is the key, and that's where a huge amount of time, uh, effort, stress, and costs can be avoided. Um, that if you've got a really good, robust plan in place, hopefully we can spot the issues before they happen and deal with them at that early stage, as opposed to Phil then having to take the gloves off and deal with them in the event of death. Um, and that's where we get a huge amount of time and cost and stress, as I say. So planning is key, have that plan in place and then keep it under regular review. Great, thanks, Tim. So I believe that brings this latest video and podcast to an end. Thank you to Tim, Phil and Sam for your time today. And thank you to everyone who's been watching or listening. If you are watching the video, our contact details should now be appearing on screen. Please do get in touch with one of the team if you want to discuss any of the issues raised today. Or otherwise, if you're listening to the podcast and would like to get in touch, please email marketing at wslaw.co.uk.